take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. We're in a series that we've entitled Ready. And uh, from the beginning of the year, we have had it as our assignment uh, to uh, pick up God's word. And uh, we have focused our time and attention for these first four months now, can you believe it? we're in the fourth month of, of the year, uh, looking at uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Thessalonian church, and uh, we finished the week before Easter uh, the first letter. We learned a lot from it, and we've been uh, taught and, and trained by it, and uh, one of the things and temptations we can find ourselves falling into, James says, is that when we find ourselves studying God's word, we can fall prey to the temptation to hear the word as it is instructed, as it is shared, as it is taught, and walk away uh, having no change in our lives. And Paul, or I'm sorry, James says that we cannot simply be hearers of the word, but we must be doers of it as well. And my hope and prayer is as it is uh, being taught in my own life, as it's being taught in your life, that we would take what we hear and goes into our heads, that we wouldn't simply become experts on the life and times of the people in the city of Thessalonica, that we wouldn't just understand what was going on in their lives and, and be able to be filled with knowledge, uh, maybe memorizing some of the, the letter ourselves, uh, coming up with, with lots of information, but that as we study, uh, that information's important. Uh, wisdom comes from a knowledge that, that God gives, and so we, we know that we need to be filled with knowledge, as the Scripture says, but that we would take these truths that we've learned in these first couple months of the year, and we would take this letter that now is behind us of 1 Thessalonians, and we would begin to do what it says, that we would simply not just be hearers of the Word, but doers as well. And I would encourage you, we're going to spend the next five weeks, the next five weeks in this series in Second Thessalonians. And my prayer and my desire is, is that, again, we would learn more about this church that changed lives and, and made an impact in the community around them, but that we would then say it's not good enough for them simply to be an example to us, but that they would be a model that we would imitate in the days and in weeks to come. I want to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to, if you will, backload all of my points, okay? So I know in the first service they got a little nervous. They're like, my goodness, he hasn't even hit point one. And look at the time. And I don't want you to be nervous. We'll be out of here by 3.30 and you'll have all that you need. But, but I want to take some time. And I recognize this morning that it's been a while since we were reminded as to who these people are, that we are devoting a large priority of our teaching ministry to the people of Thessalonica. I also recognize that there are newer people in the church who have, have come in midway through this series and may be wondering, who are these Thessalonians? Well, what are they doing? What was their life all about? And so I want to take a moment as we begin the letter of 2 Thessalonians to remind us on the times and places that Paul is uh, talking to. And I want you to recognize this morning, this is not mythological, if you will. These are real people living in real places during a real time, and we need to recognize where they came from and what they were all about so we can better understand how Paul uh, was uh, directing them with regards to being followers of Jesus Christ. 
Many of you know that Thessalonica uh, was a city in the first century that now still is alive and well today in northern Greece. Let's show you a map uh, of the area of Greece. And so you see Greece there on the uh, bottom right-hand side of the map. And you don't see Athens. Athens is straight south off of the screen uh, of, the, of where the name Greece is at. But you can see, of course, there's Italy. And, and you've got uh, areas uh, like Kosovo, Macedonia, Albania, all modern-day modern-day map, and nestled uh, on, as a harbor on the uh, Aegean Sea is Thessalonica. Still there today, uh, has a metropolitan uh, population of about a million people. The town proper of Thessalonica is about 250 to 300,000 people, about the size of uh, Aurora and Naperville combined. And uh, it's a very great city. In fact, uh, one of the leading uh, European travel magazines said this of Thessalonica, it's the hippest city in all of Greece. That's what they say of Hinkley, by the way. I don't know if you know that, okay? But, but Thessalonica is known for its nightlife. It's known for its food. It, of course, restaurants, for its social gatherings, for its festivals. That's today. You can travel. There's an airport. You can get a flight from O'Hare to Thessalonica, Greece, and you could go and, and, and see many of the places that are going to be talked about in, in our text. And here's the thing. In the first century... And maybe even still today, Thessalonica was driven by this idea that there was not one, one and only true God, but that there were many gods. And if you've studied Greek mythology, you know that there were multiplicity of gods. And as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, in my own paraphrase, the Greeks had a God for every season every star. They had a God for every scenario and situation. There were gods all over the place. In fact, when Paul visits the city of Athens, about the time that he's probably writing uh, the book or the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, he says, I see you're a very religious people and that you have many gods, that even as I walk amongst your many gods, you have the God, a, a statue to the unknown God. You're just making sure you cover all your bases so that God we don't know, uh, we're going to give him a statue as well, and we're going to worship him. And according to Greek mythology, uh, the gods were a, a sinful bunch of, of gods. Uh, they involved themselves in all manner of sin. They were a capricious and fickle group of, of gods, meaning uh, you never knew where you were at in your standing with the gods. And, and they could make your life very, very difficult. And, and, and something transpired in A.D. 51. About 18 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, three men enter into the city of Thessalonica. I bet you there were no parades for these guys. I bet you most of the people had no idea that these three men had come into their city. Their names were Paul, the great apostle, Timothy, a young pastor, and uh, Silvanus, a wonderful servant of the Lord's. They come in, and they begin over a period of of time preaching uh, the name of Jesus Christ, not as another one of the gods, but as the one and only Savior King of kings and Lord of lords. Now that created a dilemma for the people of Thessalonica. To bow the knee to this Jesus would mean that you would have to turn away from all other gods and recognize and affirm that all other gods are idols. They are nothing in comparison to the God that Paul and his associates were preaching about. And to follow this God would mean you would have to turn away from that, to stop living the way that you once did and start living the way that this God says that you were called to live and called to to serve. And what do the people of Thessalonica do? 
The Bible says they're changed by it. Not multitudes upon multitudes, but a small group of people get serious about their relationship with God, start turning away from the way they used to live, start turning away from the gods that they used to worship, and they start giving their lives over more and more each and every day in greater ways over to the cause of Christ in their lives. And Paul has taught us throughout this time that that giving yourself over to the call of Christ has to do with how you will treat others has to do how you uh, deal with uh, your own personal holiness. It involves things that even may, in many ways are off limits, like your sexuality as it's been articulated in our text. It talks about how you are to honor people, how you're to serve within the church, how you're to live holy lives. It redirects everything that we do from serving ourselves to serving the one true and living God that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. And what do the people do? They do it. Their lives are changed. Just as we watched in the video just a couple of moments ago, when you give your life over to Jesus, change takes place. It's inevitable. When God produces new life in you, that new life, that new creation is going to move you in a trajectory that's very different than the way you went before. And so what happens when a small group of people stop going with the crowd, stop doing it the way that everybody else in the culture is doing it, what's going to happen? Are people going to stand up and applaud? No, we don't see that. Are people going to give awards and medallions? Wow, this is great. You've turned away from all of our gods and you're following your God. Let's give you an award for that. No, what happens is affliction and persecution and tribulation starts to break out. In fact, one of the reasons why Paul has to leave Thessalonica so quickly is that a group of individuals who are against the cause of Christ, who hate the growth of the Christian church, uh, uh, lead Paul out by, by the way of a mob to run him out of Thessalonica, him and his two associates, never to come back. Most scholars believe that he was given a warning that if he came back, the church that he loved, the people that he loved, might be in harm's way as a result. And so Paul wisely, not saving his own skin, but protecting those who were new in the faith, says, I can't come back. So Paul does the next best thing. He sends Timothy, his trusted associate, to go and check on these Thessalonican people. He wants to know how are they doing. We left in such a hurry. Who has been teaching you? How have you been doing at growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you honoring him? Are you serving him? Are you, and this is where we got our title, are you ready for all that God is going to send your way? Are you ready to live the holy life? Are you ready for the second coming of Christ? Are you ready to endure tribulation and persecution? And Timothy comes back. Paul finds himself, by the way, in Athens, the capital city of Greece at the time. And he gets word that not only have they stayed true to the faith, but they are growing in a great manner. They're seeing more and more people come to know Christ. The the name of Christ is being uh, shared in other communities around Thessalonica. The people of God are finding themselves ready in every way. And Paul writes this letter in response to Timothy's journey. And he says, you're doing a good job. Are there things you could do better? Sure, we always can do better. But he says, the things you're doing well, do so in greater ways in the days to come. And so Paul writes this five-chapter letter. And we've walked through it and we've come to learn that that transforming power of God is still alive and well today. It's still alive in us. And so as we open up the second letter, some of it's going to be the same. 
And, and it's not that we just will go over it just to, uh, in essence, uh, just do our due diligence and walk through a book, but it's there as it was there the first time it was read, as a reminder. You know, there are things, certain things as people we need to be reminded of as, uh, on an ongoing basis that we just need to recognize as a part of our way of life. And Paul's going to tell us in 2 Thessalonians there are certain things that need to be reminded of on a daily basis. But we're also going to learn some new things, some things that maybe he started in the first place in 1 Thessalonians that he gives greater teaching to in the second letter. And it's our desire in these next couple weeks to dedicate some time and energy to get the rest of the story of this great church, the Thessalonian church, and how they finished strong the work that God had started in them. And it's our prayer that we would do the same. So let's look at our scripture this morning. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, if you don't have a Bible with us this morning, that's all right. Grab the pew Bible and the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 989. Page 989. We're going to look at the first five verses this morning. So let's look at what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Let's pray. Father God, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would remove the things that keep us or hinder us from an ever-growing relationship with you, and that you would teach us what it means to serve you and you alone. Lord, I ask that this would not simply just be an activity of knowledge, but it would be applied to our lives, to the very essence of who we are, to the activities and the things that we do, to the words that we share, and how we invest our time. We need you to continue to teach us and to lead us. Let us imitate your, your modeling so that we may honor you, and as your scripture says, may be worthy, considered worthy of the kingdom of God. We thank you that you've invited us into that kingdom, and it's our pleasure to serve and honor you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Every month, the church gets a magazine uh, called Outreach Magazine, and it's a magazine that's dedicated to helping churches uh, be better at reaching lost people with the cause of Christ. And so every month they will talk about different ways and, and different things that you can do to uh, do a better job of reaching out to people, maybe people that might not want to uh, come to church. And they have different activities and different ideas that work. And once a year, Outreach Magazine, in probably its biggest uh, um, issue of the year, comes out with an issue where it uh, awards, if you will, the title of the top 100 churches. And it does so under uh, two main categories. 
uh, within Outreach's thing, they, they award in this magazine issue, uh, the uh, first, they look at 100 top churches in the area of church attendance. And so they'll look at uh, the church attendance during the spring. They've got a certain criteria of how it works, a certain criteria to uh, what is uh, the size of your church. And, and they will list in this, uh, in this uh, issue of the top 100 churches, the top 100 largest churches in America. Now, we all have heard of the mega church, but I want you to know that the top 100 churches are the who's who of the mega church. Uh, ministry. Uh, these are the churches that, you know, Village Bible Church is a pretty big church. By the way, give you an idea of, uh, of the average size of the church. The average size of the American church is about 75 people, okay? So the Sugar Grove campus, I mean, my goodness, is, is, is tenfold that in, in many ways. Well, we may feel pretty big in that scenario, but, but in their I- I- issue, if you will, of the 100 top churches, to be in that 100 top churches, first of all, the top 100, you have to have an attendance of 7,500 or more, okay? So we're nowhere near that, okay? Then the other side of it is, is in this issue they talk about, uh, the top 10 churches boast numbers of more than 25,000, okay? To put in perspective, within that uh, uh, paradigm, only two churches in the state of Illinois meet that criteria, okay, of an attendance more than 7,500. One of the largest, top five, of course, is Willow Creek Church that boasts a a, a figure of about 27,500 in weekly attendance. Um, The second area that the church in this issue uh, shows is uh, is the churches that are the fastest growing. And so it asks the question, uh, how are churches doing at growing? And so they'll go and they'll look and say, uh, what are the 100 fastest growing churches in America? And so they'll look, and, and as you look at the numbers, some of the numbers are absolutely astronomical. One church in the top 10 saw a 150% growth from one year to another, okay? Then it says the amount of people that was. In that church alone, the growth from one year to another was 5,600 net growth, okay? I want you to think about that for a moment. 150% growth in one year. We are a church of about, uh, on a weekly attendance here at the Sugar Grove campus, about 650 people, okay? 650, 100% growth would mean, if I'm doing my math right, I'm probably wrong, but just go with it for my sake, would be we're about 1,300 next April, Okay, then you add another 50% to that, okay, and you've got another four, and we, are, we go from a church in attendance of 650 to 1,750 people in, in one year. You think it's hard to find parking now? We're going to have to take over the jewel parking lot to fit all these people, okay? And what we see is in this thing is that there are churches that are seeing absolutely phenomenal growth of people, people coming to church that have never come before. Now, right when I say that, some are going to say, okay, he's going to start badgering about it, if you will, and, and, and demagoguing it. I'm not here to do that at all. In fact, a couple of my closest pastor friends find themselves on uh, on this list, and I know these men, and I know their churches to be great churches, churches that are doing the hard things to serve and honor God. I don't even disparage Outreach Magazine for doing this. It is good sometimes for us to highlight places where it seems as if God is doing some wonderful things. But herein lies the problem. 
when I read uh, a magazine article like that, I am quick to begin to evaluate my church and my ministry. And I don't know about you, but that just seems to be like human nature. Especially when you know certain people that are in that, uh, that are part of your peer group in that. And you start asking questions, what are we not doing right? What are we, you know, are we missing something? Are we, uh, are we uh, not gifted enough? Are we not trained enough? Are we not good enough as leaders? What are we doing that seemingly is missing the boat? Uh, because don't, don't we all want to be recognized for the work that God's doing, especially in a wonderful publication like Outreach Magazine? But here's the thing. When we begin to do that, we begin to show our motives for ministry instead of God's motives. A dear friend of mine, uh, his name is Larry Osborne, is a pastor of North Coast Church in San Diego, California. To give you some of his credentials, he's number 36 on the largest churches and number 90 on the fastest growing churches, and he was interviewed as one of the few churches that had both, that he was in the top 100 for both, and this is what he wrote, and God bless him for doing it because it helps me a lot. He says, we all know the drill. Faithfulness isn't measured by the size of our church. It's foolish to compare ourselves with others. A big church isn't necessarily a healthy church. He's right. A small church can have a big impact as well, and so on. Easy to say, easy to write, but notice, it's not easy to take root in our soul. I know firsthand, Larry says, in my first three years at North Coast Church, not much that we tried work. Church growth was non-existent. It was a season of significant depression. Then suddenly, everything changed. It wasn't because we had a turnaround in our ministry. It wasn't because there was a new facility or new people, Larry says. He says, my depression started to lift after a spiritual kick in the gut. All I remember is a sudden and intense awareness that God was not pleased with the way I was evaluating my lack of ministry success and the church's lack of growth. He showed me that the thought process leading to my depression, and here's his thought process, our church isn't growing, it's all my fault, I must be a bad person and a bad pastor, was the same thinking, I love how he puts this, was the same thinking that would produce arrogance if we ever experienced rapid evangelistic growth. Thus, if our church is growing, it's all my doing. I must be a lot better than those who are struggling. Wow, it's amazing how we think, isn't it? It shook me to the core. It was, the one, it was one thing to feel that I was coming up short of my ministry potential. It was another to realize that I had deep-seated spirit of arrogance and haughtiness masked only by my lack of outward success. I discovered I really could find my identity in Christ not the size of my church. I could savor the incredible privilege of ministry, even when times were tough and fruit was sparse. Best of all, I found myself inching closer to a goal my mentor was constantly putting in front of me. Jesus wants you to get to a place where you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Larry says, I'm not there yet. Maybe I'll never be, but I'm a lot closer. In our text this morning, I wonder if the reason why Paul writes this is that the Thessalonians had heard about some other churches, that they had heard about the size of the church in in different places, that other churches were doing bigger and better things. Maybe the church was doing great. Maybe the Thessalonians were growing like gangbusters. We don't know. Maybe they were experiencing record uh, attendance. I want to tell you that this does not come, listen, this message does not come because uh, we are getting smaller. 
I want you to know, last Sunday was the highest recorded attendance in Village Bible Church history, okay? More than, if our numbers are right, almost 1,400 people were in attendance in our services. And it is easy for us to sit back and say, wow, we're doing something great. Look at this. Look at the people who are coming. It's easy for us as pastors and as a staff to pat ourselves on the back and think we have arrived, we've done something. But our text this morning is a remedy against the two-faced or the two-headed monster of doing ministry for the applause of men or for the arrogance of our own hearts. For us who who can get depressed and, and find ourselves wondering if we're doing enough, it is a great reminder that it is not our own doing, but God's doing that gets the job done. And if it's the idea that we can be arrogant and proud in the way that we are doing things, look at the kingdom we are growing. We are reminded and rebuked that this is about God and his kingdom and his work and not our own. What Paul says to the church of of the Thessalonians and to the church of Village Bible is if you want to be great, if you want to see God bless this community of believers, then our goal should not be to be in a magazine's top 100 churches. Not that that's bad. Listen, I don't have any disparaging words about that whatsoever. But that's not the end goal. And while it's wonderful to be recognized and known for great things, it is far better to ask the question, are we not on outreach's top 100 but are we on God's? Are we doing what our God and Father in heaven wants us to do? How do we know if we're on that list? How do we know if we're even in contention? Paul gives us, listen, five things this morning. I'm gonna move through them quickly. Five things that put us on God's top list and moves us, as Larry helped us to understand, to move to God's definition of greatness and success and not our own. What does God's top churches look like? The number one thing is, is it must be a church that's centered on the right things. Centered on the right things. Open up the letter. Paul starts it again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, those are the guys that are writing the, the letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. We run by these things in introductions, and we don't think about it, but if you underline or circle in your Bible, one thing you should circle is the church of the Thessalonians. Why? I mean, all that is is the, if you will, the the mailing address to this letter. What this tells us and helps us to understand is that God is uniquely and intimately aware of the affairs of a church like the church of the Thessalonians. That he is uniquely aware and concerned about the inner workings of the church of Sugar Grove called Village Bible. You see, we get this idea that God is so involved in the cosmic affairs of the universe that he is not all that concerned about us. But we are reminded that not only is God concerned about the church, he's concerned about us. He knows the amount of hairs on our head. It's easy to count for me. I get it, okay? He, he is uniquely aware of our struggles and our concerns. He, he wants us to share our anxieties and our concerns with him. He wants us to praise him and adore him. He is uniquely concerned when one of the, of the sheep comes back who has wandered away, that there's rejoicing in heaven when one repents and is brought into the kingdom of God. God is uniquely aware of you and the details of your life. He knows where you live. He knows where you work. He knows where you go to school. He knows who you've married. He knows who your kids 
kids are, not just an information, but he is directly and intimately involved in the affairs of your life. And so it is as the church. God is uniquely aware and concerned of what's happening here. He has brought you who have come into this place. He has brought you to this place. He has brought you for whatever reason it may be. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. God knows why you're here, and God has brought you and moved you in such a way to bring you to this very moment, to this very service. And what he's saying in the opening of this letter is, your church is important to me, says God. This is an important place. Why is it important? Because we've been told that Christ went to the cross for his church. He died and ransomed the church back to himself. And he does so by bringing people uh, into the body of Christ through personal salvation and bringing them into this corporate family of God. Now notice what Paul says. Paul says, okay, you got to be centered on the right thing, church. You unique church in Thessalonica, you're uniquely placed here, and I want you, whatever you do, I want it to be funneled, I want it to be centered, I want your priority to be on two things. Verse one, I want you to be God-centered. Write that somewhere in your outlines, God-centered. Well, what does he mean by God-centered? That everything in the church should, should find its basis, its beginning, its process, it's praise, it's programs to center on the person of God. Where do we see it? Notice, we are the church of Village Bible, just as they were the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 2, and he says, we have grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God. In verse uh, 4, he says, we boast about you in the churches of God. And then he says in verse 5, this is the evidence of righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Six times in five verses, the deity of the triune God is brought by name, either Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father. In fact, let me just broaden that out a little bit. In, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians consists eight chapters. If you counted the pages in your Bible, there's one, two, three, four, five pages in your Bible dedicated to these two letters. In those five pages, there are more than 80 references to God in its contents. Now, you could say, well, they're just doing that. That's how you sell books. You put God's name in it, right? You just put them in there all the time. No, this isn't talking about being God-centered. is isn't just mentioning God, having God on our sign, having God in the bulletin, having God uh, on our kids' activity sheets. To be God-centered is to recognize things about God that make God the most important thing that we're a part of. For all the years I've been a pastor, almost uh, seemingly every couple months, this phrase will continue to come out. We do not serve you, uh, the members of Village Bible Church. We do not serve you, the guests of Village Bible Church. We do not serve the staff or the pastors of Village Bible Church. Whom we serve is an audience of one. Now that doesn't mean that we don't care about you. That just means you are a secondary to the primary focus of this church. Whatever we do, 
It is great when you applaud. It's wonderful. We feel good and it helps our self-esteem and all of that. But what is more important is that when we are finished with whatever activity, whatever worship service, whatever mission trip that we do, that it's not that people stand up and say, wow, what a great church, but that God stands up from his throne and says, well done, good and faithful servants. To be God-centered is to be driven by the idea that it isn't what people think about me or about our church, it's what God thinks about us. Now, why would that be important? Notice Paul says that it should be God-centered, centered on the work of our God, who is our Father. To be our Father gives us the idea that God is the originator of all that we do. We would not be here if it wasn't for our father, okay? I would not be here if my mom and dad weren't, I don't know, I shouldn't have gone down that road, okay? Okay? I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them. That's what I'm trying to get across, okay? I wouldn't be here without them. And we wouldn't be here without God. That little group of people that got together some 45 years ago or so uh, in, in a house in Sugar Grove would have never had the impetus to start something like that had it not been for God. Listen, Village Bible Church was not started out of a will or decision or vision of a man, but it was started through the heart of God. And what we need to recognize is, is because he's the founder of it, that he has definable rights into what's going to happen in this place. This idea of father also helps us understand what we should look like, how we should be characterized, what people should see in us. I can't tell you how many people will tell me, those who know my dad will say, you're a chip off the old block. You you sound like him. You have mannerisms like him. The older I get, the more I look like him. Let me tell you something. I'm approaching 40 years of age, and my and what I used to mock my dad for and laugh about my dad, I mean, it was, it, my dad was gross, man. He had hair growing out of his nose and ears, and, and, and I just would always point that out. And now I'm the one being pointed at, okay? And I'm recognizing the things, very things that I would point out in my father, now my own children are pointing out in me. Why? Because I am a DNA carrier of my dad. And this is what my response is, and this is a good response for you parents. When your children mock you for something that, uh, that you have going on in your aging body, remind them that 50% of that DNA is in them, Okay. Amen? It's going to happen, all right? Because I know it's happening. The things I made fun of my parents about, it's happening to me, okay? And that's the great uh, equalizer, okay? What that means for us as a church is that we should look like God. We should be characterized by God. When, When people see Village Bible Church do ministry, they shouldn't say, wow, they have followed their pastoral staff. That's, they look just like their pastoral staff. No, what they should look like is God. When people see us, they should see God. I didn't share this in the first service because the individual was there. But we have a new uh, woman coming to our church just recently. And the reason was given, listen, this is, this is, a, great, this is a great testimony. The woman said, the reason why I came to Village Bible Church was because I have a son who has has classmates that attend Village Bible Church, 
And I watch how those children act. I watch how their families treat their kids and how they are in the community. And I said, if that's what Jesus brings to a family, I want to be there. What a testimony. Now, we can tip our hats to those people and say, well done, or we can say you're doing exactly what you're supposed to. Your life and your ministry and your DNA mimics that, not of a great church, but a great father in heaven. You're a chip off the old block. But notice, he doesn't finish with just God the Father. He then shares twice this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't stop, or sorry, Jesus Christ the Lord. He doesn't stop simply at the saving name of Jesus. He doesn't stop at the Messiah label of Jesus. Jesus, God saves, Jehovah saves. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the the one uh, who God would send. He doesn't just stop there as if Jesus only saves us and is the one who was going to save us. But notice he adds on the phrase, the Lord. The Lord means the king. The Lord means the the preeminent one. The Lord means the one who is in control. The Lord means uh, the CEO. The Lord means the one who is the boss. Now why would Paul remind the Thessalonians and Village Bible Church that Jesus Christ is in charge? Because listen, if we forget that, then we will start thinking we're in charge. We'll start thinking that we're the ones who get to set the rules. In the Badal house, mom and dad are in charge. Here's where it lies the problem for the three Badal boys. When mom and dad are gone, there's a power struggle as to who's going to be in charge, right? And we'll hear statements, well, you're not the boss of me, and you're not the boss of me, and, and there's chaos, okay? Why? Because there's an absence of the ones who are really in charge. Everybody else thinks that they're the ones who are in charge. Listen to me. If we take Jesus Christ the Lord out of Village Bible Church, there will be an insurgency that will take place in our ranks. And so Paul says the church that is centered on God is a church that recognizes, listen, the elders aren't in charge, the pastors aren't in charge, the small group leaders aren't in charge, the Sunday school teachers aren't in charge, the parking ministry is not in charge, the welcome center is not in charge. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ, the Lord. He's our CEO. He's our commanding officer. He's the one who tells us what to do, where to go, how to do it, what to be a part of. He is the one who's the preeminent one. He is in charge. And so church that is centered on God understands where it came from, who its daddy is, and it also recognizes that Christ is the one who leads the charge. As we sang this morning, Christ alone, cornerstone, he's the one. So he's God-centered. Notice, we need to be gospel-centered. Verse 2, gospel-centered. Well, where's the gospel? Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's our message. Here's our ministry. Our job is to share the grace and peace of God in our lives. How do we do that? We do so by recognizing, first of all, that we, without the grace and peace of God, would be lost and on our way to hell. 
And so we must recognize this morning, to be God-centered is to know God's place in our lives. To be gospel-centered is to recognize that apart from the saving work of Christ, we would be lost. And to recognize that because we will not find grace or peace until we find it at the foot of the cross. And once we find it at the foot of the cross, a gospel-centered church is a church that understands, listen, that all arrogance is put away. All pride is thrown away because we recognize we're all sinners at that foot of the cross. And we recognize without Christ, each and every hour in our life, giving us grace and giving us peace, we would be dead and broken. So what takes place is we experience this love and this grace and this mercy, and God showers it down. Oh, the love that God has lavished on his children, First John tells us that we might be called the children of God. And so this church of people in Thessalonica get to understand the gospel and the inner workings of the gospel in their life, and they recognize how broken and and dead they were in their trespasses and sin, how sick they were in their living and the decisions they were making, and God, out of his love, rescues them from their sin. And what do people who have been rescued from their sin do? They go and tell other people that they need to be rescued. How do they do it? By extending grace and peace in abundance to all those they come in contact with. To be a church on God's list begins by being a church that is centered on the right things. Are we a God-centered church? Are we a gospel-centered church? It's a question we can ask our own individual lives as well. Number two, it's a church that's challenged to grow spiritually. Verse three, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. That phrase, abundantly growing, is literally super growing, if you will, in the Greek uh, text. What it it means is, is it gives the picture of a tree that is experiencing abnormal rate of growth, okay? Okay? As I watch my children grow, I I am watching, especially our oldest one, grow. Man, Noah's growing. I don't mean to embarrass you. He's growing like a a beanstalk. Man, he's just just growing every day. We we see another inch on the guy, okay? And we're amazed by that. Wow. And we watch that with our children. They grow and they, they grow. And we say, well, that's, that's, that's what happens in your teenage years. Of course you're supposed to grow. That's a part of the human growth pattern. But as we grow older, we say, well, we're not supposed to grow. I haven't grown an inch for a long time. I finished growing probably around the years of, of 18 years of age. And, and I haven't grown much from that. What Paul says is this church in the Thessalonica was growing at an abnormal rate of speed. They were growing in such a way that it was amazing to watch. It was amazing to see that people were stopping and saying, wait a minute, last time I saw you, you were only this tall spiritually, and now I'm looking up to you, spiritually speaking. What's going on? You're you're not the same height that you were spiritually the last time I saw you. So how does a church get challenged to grow spiritually? How do we get and help and create an incubator for ministry like that to be done? As a staff, we have dedicated the last year, and and with greater measure, our last staff retreat that happened just a couple weeks ago, to this idea of how do we develop an atmosphere, an environment, 
for this kind of super abundant growth to take place. And here's what we came up with. I want you to write these down. What does it look like to be a growing believer? How do we, how do we if you will, measure that? We came up with four things. Number one, when it comes to a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, we ask the question, are they having a growing relationship with Christ and his church? Meaning, are they growing in their relationship with the Savior of their souls, and are they living a life in obedience to him in growing ways? Are they seeing growth in their life, in their spiritual walk, where they know Jesus and experience Jesus in a way that they didn't six months ago or a year ago? How about the relationship with Christ's bride, the church? Are they engaged with the church in such a way, not simply in activities, but engaged in such a way that they see the role that God has placed them in within a local entity of God's people? Are they growing in that relationship with Christ and his church? Number two, are they utilizing their God-given gifts? If you're growing in your relationship with Christ, then each and every day you and I are becoming more like Christ, and we are becoming more like Christ in the development of the gifts that God has given. And so God has given very freely gifts, and all gifts are are ways for us to show who God is. So I'm using my gift right now, the gift of preaching and teaching. What I'm doing is I'm radiating the, the gift of our powerful preaching and teaching God. I'm not God because I don't have all the gifts. I don't have nearly close to all the gifts. And the church... The reason why we want to know the church better is because God says that he's building within the church a group of people who all have their different gifts, who all play different parts of the body, who then, by ourselves, we don't complete it, but with Christ as our head, we begin to show the full glory of who God is and what he's all about. And so we want people to radiate the glory of God in their lives by living out their gifts, knowing what their gifts are, and using those gifts, not because, listen, using your gifts is not, will you serve our kids and in the children's ministry? Yeah, I guess so. If you can't find anybody else, then I'll do it. That's not using your gifts. Using your gifts is recognizing, I love kids, and I'm, I'm not sure why I love kids, because they, quite frankly, at times aggravate you, Right? And I could find other things to do, but I am driven and drawn to kids learning about Jesus. I am drawn and sharing the good news with teenagers. I'm drawn to, to not just sitting at a, at a small group of gathering, but, but really leading and, and shepherding a group of people through the teaching of God's word and through fellowship and prayer. And I'm going to give of myself, and I'm going to sacrifice for those group of people to use the gifts to show that group of people who God is in my life, using your gifts. Number three, a developed follower of Jesus Christ is one who's living a life that is characterized by generosity. For God so loved the world that he, helped me out, gave. If we are fully developed followers of Jesus Christ, we will give. Now, I don't mean simply just in the manner of giving of tithes and offerings, but that's not excluded in this. 
And if you say, you know what, I'm a child of God, I'm a developed follower of Jesus Christ, and you look and you are taking, taking, and taking, and never giving of your time, your talents, your treasure, your testimony, then I'm going to beg the question this morning, maybe you're not the fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ you thought you were. Because the one who loves the world as Christ loved the world, the one who loves the world as as Christ did is the one who themselves gives, not just a little. It does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave an angel, or he gave a prophet, or he gave an organization. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What does a life of generosity look like? A sacrificial generosity that says, I will not give the scraps, I will not give the leftovers, I will not give what's left on my calendar, I will give the best of the best. And we want to develop Christians who in their first thought is, what can I give to the world because my God in heaven and my Lord Jesus Christ gave the best of what they had. And being a follower of Christ, I want to do the same thing. Number four, a person who is growing spiritually is one, as we've already talked about, has a vision that is God-centered. And what that means, very practically speaking, is God, my life is in your hands. I place myself on your throne. I'm not going to conform myself to the ways of this world anymore. I'm going to be transformed, and I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to allow you to be the one who, who leads me. You're going to be the one who guides me. You're going to be the one who, who is going to evaluate what I'm doing. And, and so what I want to know is when I spend my money, when I spend my time, when I'm at work, when I'm at school, when I'm at my house, when I'm in my marriage, when I'm in my uh, family, is what I'm doing pleasing? and honoring to you. And we believe that when we position the people of this church in that way, we will, by the Spirit's help, and by the Spirit's empowerment, we'll see people who will grow in abnormally quick ways. And that's what we want to do. Paul moves and he says, okay, there's another reason why they made God's team, or God's great churches. They're connected to one another in loving relationships. Verse 3. It says, we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love for every one of you is increasing. I'm going to finish this up very quickly, so let's move a little quicker on this. The phrase increasing gives the word picture of a creek or a river that is overflowing its banks, okay? That's at flood stage, Okay, so when he says, listen, your love is increasing, your love has gone outside of its banks. It's spilling over. Well, what does that mean? It means three things very quickly. First of all, why does a river overflow its banks? Because it has collected the more rain that it can contain within its banks. So when you see a river or a creek overflow, it doesn't take brain surgeons to tell us that it's rained a lot, right? What Paul is saying is, is the reason why your love has grown and has overflowed its banks is God has lavished his love upon you, okay? And when God lavishes his love upon you, you're not going to be able to contain it. And so what's going to happen is it's going to overflow. And it's going to overflow, and what it will mean, first of all, is it will overflow and reach places that it's never reached before, Okay, so when we see a creek or a river at flood stage, we will usually see it wider than it's ever been before. 
And what that means is, is if we've experienced the love of God in the ways that God wants us to, the way we'll know we've experienced that love is that we are loving an ever-growing group of people. The width of our love will be greater than it was before. Does that make sense? And so asking the question this morning, as you're growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ, as this church is growing in its relationship with Jesus Christ, are we loving more people than we did before? I don't just mean number of people. I mean, are we willing to go to places that we weren't willing to go before? That jerk that's at your, at your workplace that, that you're like, you know what, nobody should love that guy. Are you willing to love him? Willing to love that family member that drives you nuts? Are you willing to love that spouse who's unlovable, that child that drives you crazy? The love of God, when we are inundated by his love, will compel us to love, listen, even the unlovable, even the unlovely. Because we will be reminded that we are recipients of God's love and his grace while we were unlovable, while we were unlovely. The second thing that it does is when a river overflows at banks, the width of it increases, yes, but so does its depth, right? The only reason why it overflows the banks is that it's gotten deeper and there's more depth to it than there was before. And so it's got to find a place to go. And, and what that means for Paul is Paul is saying, not only has your reach gotten wider, but how you show the love, it's gotten deeper. And what it means is, is that we don't simply love in simple, casual ways, but the sacrifice and the willingness to go beyond the call of duty is there that we are willing to do all that we can to meet the depth of hurt and pain and sorrow and struggle in the life of others. So as you're growing in your relationship, as the church grows in its relationship with God, do we see ourselves growing in the depth of how we love? Not only who we love, but how we love. Paul says, a church that's on God's top list is a church that is loving in that way. It's overflowing its banks. Number four, these type of churches are churches that are case studies for others to follow. Verse four, he says, we've been boasting about you to the churches of God. Now notice what he says. We boast about you, Thessalonians, because you got the best church around. Your building is second to none. Look at your AV equipment. It's awesome, especially for the first century, by the way. Your pastor, man, man, the reason why we're boasting about you is that Badal character, he's surely great, right? No, it doesn't say anything about the pastor or the staff. It doesn't say anything about the building. It doesn't say the multiplicity of services that are taking place. It doesn't talk about having the best VBS in the community. It doesn't talk about any of the things that we think, per se, at times are important. What does he say? This is the reason why we boast about you, your steadfastness and your faith. Notice, in persecution and afflictions. We will become a model church for people when they see us, not in our triumphs, but in our trials and tragedies. And here's the thing, boasting about churches is good. It's good and right. Paul is not sinning when he boasts about the church. But there's two things I want you to remember. If Village Bible Church is going to be boasted about, then there's two things we need to remember. There's a reality. Write that down. There's a reality. That if others are seeing what they're doing, what we're doing, they're pointing and saying, wow, look at Village Bible Church. If people are doing that, let me remind you of a reality. Then the devil knows you're doing it as well. 
And so we need to be ready. And Paul's saying, hey, we boast about you, but be ready. You're a marked church. The devil's going to come at you. He's going to come at you through the, the means of persecution and affliction. He's coming your way. There's a reality. Second, there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility that when you become a church that people start to look at as an example. That there's a responsibility that you better stay on the straight and narrow. Why? Because people are counting on you. And so as Paul is telling the Thessalonians that he's talking about them to other churches, the worst thing that could happen is the Thessalonians could, could blow it and then make a mockery of God's name to all the churches that have been brought up. And I can't tell you how many churches have casted big shadows. Big shadows. In fact, two of the uh, churches that were the largest top ten churches uh, two years ago had major leadership issues that one church is completely dissolved. It's not even around anymore. Once boasting a a church population of almost 20,000 people now no longer exists. And another church that was about fifteen to 18,000 people in its heyday, that now is no really much bigger than, than the Sugar Grove campus. When we build on the wrong things or we start boasting and, and start highlighting people's ministry and we don't live up to the gospel that we're preaching, it will create great downfall and, and great turmoil for the people that are following. So it's a great responsibility. Paul says, you're doing a great job, but be on the alert. Watch out. Recognize the responsibility there. Number five, and I'll close with this. We are consumed with a kingdom mindset. Paul finishes verse five, and he says, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. How do we know if we're worthy of the kingdom of God? Well, Paul says, listen, you already have been considered worthy of the kingdom of God. We don't have to earn it. What we have to do is live in light of it. And so if we recognize that God is in control and that God has the best for us yet to come, then live in light of it and have the mindset that we are winners, not losers. That the kingdom of God has already established itself in the already but not yet. That while God has not made it manifest to us that Christ is seated on his throne, his enemies are his footstool, and we, the church of the living God, are on the march, Christian soldiers, ready to win the battle that's already been won for us. And so we're consumed by that. We've already won the battle, we've already won the war, and we fight from a place of victory, not from a place of defeat. And the church is a group of people who recognize to be great in God's eyes is to take the mantle of growing his kingdom, not our own. To make his name great, not our own. To make his gifts seen by all, not our own. And it's then and only then, even when people boast of us, they're not boasting of us, but they're boasting of the Lord. Because it is Christ, and it's his spirit, that is living and working and having its being in us. And brothers and sisters, we're along for the ride. Are we a church that is a part of God's top churches? I hope so. 
I hope that one day when we stand before God and God speaks to us as a collective church, he may say, as he may say of all of us individually, well done, good and faithful servants. And so to that end, we work, we serve, we praise, we pray, we devote ourselves to that undying, uncompromising truth that it is God whom we serve. And to him be the glory forever. Let's pray. Father God, we give you this time, and I thank you for the patience and endurance of your people as we study your word, and I pray that they would walk away not only with a sense of knowledge of some important facts about your word, but they would walk away asking the question, how can we be that church unless we are that kind of people? And so, Lord, I pray that every one of us would ask the question this morning, am I the kind of Christian that makes the list of well-done, good, and faithful servants? And if not, Lord, that we would change, whether it's in our, in our priorities, being centered on the right things, if it's, if it's being challenged in our faith, if it's being, um, Lord, um, committed and connected to one another in love. Whatever it is, Lord, that whatever's hindering us from, from knowing you in the way that we should, that we would stop those things. And we would put our attention on you and the work you've done in our lives and what you've called us to as the Thessalonians did. So Lord, that we might be an example. Lord, that we might even pray that, that you and your people might boast of us, not because of what we have done, but they may boast of the miraculous work that you have done in a broken and messed up and hurting people so that when people see the work we've done, they may glory in you and you alone. So send us forth, Lord, as your church, as your people who radiate your glory, who declare your praises. Let us live differently than the way we came in this morning for a new week, ready to take it on for your kingdom and for your name's sake. It is in that name that we pray. Amen. And amen.